welcome back to the Beer Truth Podcast. I'm Tom, and today we got a big one. It's round 66, whatever that means. And Sean Lawson of the highly esteemed Lawson's Finest Liquids was kind enough to join me. And while Lawson's already has a great reputation, I did come away from the interview more impressed than I expected. Uh, I thought I knew a pretty good amount about Lawson's and the story, but uh, definitely learned some things in this one. They're socially responsible, they're environmentally responsible, and making great beer is one thing, but making a difference in your community is another, and ultimately more important, which as we'll hear, Lawson's is doing. But if you're making great beer on top of that, all the better. If you can find Lawson's beers uh, wherever you are, that means you're in the Northeast, but uh, I recommend grabbing some, regardless of the style. Uh, Everything that I've had has been pretty great grab a beer and let's hear from sean lawson yeah let's start with the basics sure you know if people don't know lawson's which i think most people do whether having your beer or trying Mm -hmm. to get your beer yeah um yeah where did the where did this all start for you and to get to a point like this well, how long do you have? <laughs> we got time. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I'm Sean Lawson, uh, founding uh, brewer and CEO at Lawson's Finest Liquids. Uh, started the business back in 2008, but really the start of Lawson's Finest goes uh, back quite a bit further than that. And I trace the beginnings back to my uh, days as a college student at UVM. My friend Matt Robinson, when I was a junior, invited me over one day. said, hey, want to come try some of my homebrew? I was like, well, heck yeah. <laughs> and so I went over to his apartment. He cracked open a couple bottles, poured them into a glass, and I took a sip. I was like, wow, this is really good. You made this? He's like, yeah, I made this. And I'm like, no way, man. This is better than anything you can buy in the store. And he's like, yeah, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, can you show me how? And he was like, I'd love to. So, of course, I did what every newbie home, aspiring home brewer does and runs out, buys a kit, and gets some ingredients. And I got the glass carboy in the plastic bucket and a copy of uh, the Brewer's Bible, um, The Joy of Homebrewing from Charlie Papazian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a couple weeks later, we're cooking up my first batch of homebrew. This is back in... 1990 uh, in downtown Burlington at my apartment at the end of Lafayette Street. I remember it well. It was a maple wheat ale, and I was inspired by a couple of different maple beers that the Vermont Pub and Brewery uh, was making in downtown Burlington. They had opened just a couple years prior in 1988, uh, and uh, the beers that Catamount Brewing out of uh, Windsor, where Harpoon Brewing is located in Vermont now, and those beers inspired my first homebrews and that kicked off a a love and a passion for for brewing my degree was in environmental studies and i got into that work uh, after graduation and went back to school at uvm a couple years later for masters in forestry and the whole way through i was really interested in homebrewing and kept honing my skills at it i worked at a couple breweries right out of college uh First as a dishwasher at the Breckenridge Pub and Brewery, and I loved the brewery part of it. And so I eventually talked my way into letting them help me wash kegs and bottle beers because they were just using a, a single head filler and hand crowning bottles to sell them across the bar. 
And that was my first experience in and around uh, uh, working at, uh, at a brewery. And it really, it excited me, but I felt like I had a calling having studied environmental studies. I wanted my work to have some meaningful impact on making the world a better place from an environmental standpoint. So that's when I got into the forestry work, research, then I got into education. And over the years, family and friends kept uh, encouraging my brewing and eventually suggesting maybe I should open my own brewery. And I was like, no, nah. you know, I didn't think my beer was that good. And so started entering contests uh, in the, uh, here in Vermont and then the National uh, American Home Brewers Association, Association um, National Homebrew Competition, and mm-hmm. got a few awards, and it was good validation that, hey, maybe it is pretty good beer. And I, I was always excited about making beer, being around beer, and that's when uh, I started thinking about maybe opening a business, and that's that started in uh, 2008. It really started as a hobby. Uh, and built a small building next to our house up in Warren, Vermont. Uh, one barrel system, part-time job on the side. I didn't quit my day job doing forestry work for uh, the state of Vermont because it was a good-paying job. I had benefits, retirement, and I said, let's prove a concept. Let's see how, how this goes. And right out of the gate, it seemed I had a following from my home brewing days, and Folks bought up the beer as fast as I could. I was only selling it in a few locations, 22-ounce bottles down at the Warren store a few miles down the road from where we are here in Waitsfield, Vermont, and on draft at a couple of local establishments, American Flatbread, which is a pretty legendary spot, the original flatbread spot uh, at LaRue Farm here in Waitsfield, Uh, the Pitcher Inn down in the village of Warren, and then up at Mad River Glen, the ski area. And that's actually where the first keg of Lawson's Finest and the first beer of Lawson's Finest was ever sold. I remember it really well. It was St. Patrick's Day uh, back in 2008, and there was probably like 10 people there. It was the end of the day, and they tapped the keg, and uh, half of them were my friends, and the other half were employees that were hanging out at the pub at the end of the day. And uh, it was a pretty memorable moment. I can I can picture it. And a few years of uh, cranking away on the one-barrel system, and I decided uh, it was working, and people liked the beer, and I could sell it way faster than I could make it, so I decided to expand to seven barrels in uh, 2011, so three years in. After a year, I quit my day job. I was like, okay, I can make a go of this. And um, that was a really pivotal year, 2008. Uh, My mom was 59 at the time, and she came down ill with pancreatic cancer. She was otherwise really healthy, vibrant woman. And so, and she passed away just three months later. And I was, it was pretty, it was a stunner. It was pretty shocking to me. And so it gave me pause as to, okay, what do I really want to do with my life? I'm really enjoying making beer and I have a passion for it and I think I can make a business for it. And that was pivotal in my decision to leave my day job and start brewing full time for a career. Yeah. It took a few years of um, incremental growth and then putting in that seven barrel system to start to propel Lawson's Finest forward. But by that point, somehow we had gained a reputation through beer traders on uh, the forums on Beer Advocate. We got some great press in those early days. And because we're located in a tourist area or an area that relies on tourism here in the Mad River Valley, people would come to the area, they'd buy our beer, they'd take it back home, share it with their friends and family and tell 
others about, oh, you got to try this beer. It's really good. And that yeah. sort of grassroots marketing uh, or word of mouth about Lawson's Finest is really what helped propel the brand in the early days. There were also a lot fewer breweries around then. Uh, when I started in 2008, there was about 1,500 breweries in the country, and now there's over 9,000. So yeah, it was a little easier to get attention back then. Uh, and so our, our reputation and the demand for the beer kept growing in those early years. Uh, and about five years in, uh, started thinking about what's next. How are we going to be able to say yes more? Because I was saying no all the time to retailers, to bars and restaurants, to customers that wanted to buy our beer outside of the small part were of Vermont saying, that we were d- distributing to. Were you saying no because you just couldn't make it fast just enough. couldn't make we're making i was making as much as i could but with a seven barrel system it's only about yep. maxed out at about 400 barrels a year so it didn't go very far and people were buying it up really fast so at the time i had been reading about this place called two roads brewing down in uh, stratford connecticut and i did some investigation went down and met with them got a water sample found the water was really great and similar soft water profile to here uh, where the brewery was located at the time in Warren, Vermont, and decided to do a test batch and see if we could produce something with a flavor profile and the quality that I was expecting and that our fans would expect uh, as a way to grow the business. We didn't have the capital at the time to do a big uh, expansion uh, of our own, um, and I wasn't quite ready to hire people and have employees. I really enjoyed working on my own, and I had really young kids at home. So working from home was a really good lifestyle, quality of life balance for me. Um, You know, I could be out in the brew house working during the day and run up to the end of the street and grab the kids off the school bus at the end of the day. So that work-life balance was pretty important. And tried out the two roads model and the first batch that we made, I was just planning to dump it down the drain uh, as a test batch. We did a half size batch down there and I tasted it and it was... It, it blew me away. I was like, all right, this is really good. I would definitely put my name on this. So we ended up kegging it all off um, and bringing it up to Vermont to sell that very first batch, a test batch of uh, our number one flagship today, Sip of Sunshine. Uh, and that's a whole nother story. How to, Where did Sip of Sunshine come from? And the first home run beer uh, that I brewed, I call it a home run beer because it was the one that people sought out the most was Double Sunshine. Uh, double IPA, uh, very tropical, fruit forward, which was new in those days back in 2009, 2010 uh, for IPAs for that flavor profile. And people loved it. And they'd drive from all over New England and beyond to come to the Warren store to buy it. So when I looked at the Two Roads model, I'm like, I want to make a beer that's like Double Sunshine, but not quite exactly. Create a new beer that has its own identity. Um, so Double Sunshine down, came before came Sip first. of Sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so Sip of Sunshine was inspired by um, Double Sunshine, um, which was the really the most popular beer that I made out of the Warren Brewery. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned the first beer that you brewed uh, on the stovetop being a maple wheat beer. Was that a kit recipe, or were you from, like, day one writing your recipes? It was both. It was uh, a kit that I added my own ingredients to. Okay. And I added the maple syrup as uh, additional fermentable sugar. Okay. So um, I used less 
there was a malt extract with a little um, grain in the bag soaked in the water and uh, and that's how I did it so I really enjoyed uh, recipe creation and formulation from the very beginning so I'd use I'd look through recipe books and read about beers and I subscribed to Zimmergy the magazine and the brew your own magazine to learn more about brewing and I would start with sort of an established style and then make it up on my own use use sort of base recipes for inspiration and the maple beers were I, it's such a Vermonty ingredient, uh, maple syrup. <laughs> so, it had to be maple. Yeah. So from the beginning, I was always fascinated and interested in using maple syrup uh, in our beer. And it, it continues to be, that's one of our uh, styles, I think, that sets us apart as, as a brewery is doing maple beer really well. Yeah, you do a few of them. Right. We do, yeah. We have um, we have our standard, which we recently relaunched uh, under with new branding. It's called the Mad River Maple mm-hmm. Ale. Um, that's one that I was originally a homebrew recipe, and it's it's pretty much the same recipe today. Once I scaled it to the to the commercial brewery, brewing on one and then seven barrels um, here in Waitsfield, and we can talk about the new facility here that opened in 2018. Uh, it's a uh, 34 uh, barrel system, 40 hectoliter, um, and we brewed on that system now. And then the Faston Maple Imperial Stout, uh, another homebrew recipe that's uh, that's endured to today, and people love that beer in the winter. We make it seasonally during the colder months. And then probably the most special maple beer would be the Maple Triple, and that's a beer that's created with concentrated maple sap replacing the water in the beer in, instead of, you know, a typical mash regime. So I get the concentrated sap from a sugar maker. It's only available seasonally when um, sh- what we call sugaring season in Vermont is, and that's in the late winter, early spring, generally late February through uh, mid-April. Somewhere in there you get a six, about six weeks of really good weather where it's above freezing during the day, warm enough for the sap to flow in the trees. But it freezes up at night, and that creates um, pressure in the roots and the vascular system of the trees that makes the sap flow up the tree into the buds that are starting to grow for the growing season. And so what we do is we work with a local sugar maker, and they boil it down partway to syrup. So it's about 14 15% sugar when we start, or Play-Doh, uh, which is big. That's a decent-sized beer uh, strength. Uh, that would make a 6 or 7% alcohol uh, by weight by volume beer even without adding any malt and then I pile in as much malt as we can fit in the mash tun and make about a 10% maple beer and I find there's something unique about putting the combining the maple sugars uh, with the grains in the mash I think there's something that happens enzymatically that fixes some of the maple sugars in a way uh, that the maple flavor carries through to the finished beer in a way that's not possible just from adding maple syrup to the wort or to the boiling kettle or to the fermenter after the beer is brewed. I, and I, it's just a theory. I don't have any science to prove it. Uh, but based on experience and the sensory um, profile of that beer, there's got to be something that's happening in the in the magic of the mash that... Um, that changes the maple sugars in some way, or maybe somehow they they get attached to some of the unfermentable uh, starchier 
sugars in in that mash. Uh, and that one, that's I'm I'm really proud of that beer. That that one has won uh, three times at the World Beer Cup in the specialty category in mm -hmm. 2010, 20, 2012, and 2016. And then we also got a medal at the Great American Beer Fest uh, back in 2017 for that beer. As well, that's so that's the, our most award-winning beer, the Maple Triple. Maple Triple, yeah, okay. yeah. It comes out about ten percent. Then I age it in maple liqueur barrels for about a year, and then I blend it with some of the fresh brew from the current year. So it's a okay. it's a full year in the making. So yeah. it's a labor of love, and, and it's said, a cork and cage finish. It's yeah. a it's a real specialty beer. We only do about a hundred cases of it a year, one seven barrel batch. Yeah, yeah. You said uh, fifteen Play-Doh. Um, before you add any malt, right? Yeah, yeah. And the the wort is around, depending on the year, it's around twenty eight to thirty play doh. Okay. When it goes I, into you the said fermenter, that and I was thinking there, are, there are beers that finish higher than that, <laughs> and uh, you know, trade online for you know whatever big barrel aged mm -hmm. craziness yeah. that finishes at like thirty mm -hmm. that does. Those numbers are used to be crazy mm -hmm. and not not so crazy anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, to to bring it to this location, you said sure. it opened in twenty eighteen. A uh, little little different scale than a one barrel in the shed. Yeah, yeah, big difference. We've come a long ways. Never could have imagined it. Would yeah. Be. We'd land here. Always had a vision from the beginning of opening a place here in the Mad River Valley. That would be a home for Lawson's Finest where we could be uh, welcome folks in and, and host them and they could drink our beer under in, in our own space. And not at your house also. Yeah, not at my house. We couldn't we couldn't host anybody there. Um, it was not, our address on uh, some of the brewing publications that I got was... Lawson's Finest Liquids, not open to the public. Warren, Vermont. <laughs> so we weren't open to the public there because of our zoning and being in a small residential neighborhood. So we didn't do tours or retail or tasting or really anything up at that brewery other than making beer and distributing it. Did uh, that keep people from showing up sometimes? We occasionally had people show up, yeah, yeah, unexpectedly. So we did a really good job in the beginning of managing to keep our address out of the public domain it wasn't it wasn't easy we we're pretty vigilant about it but we're like no we can't that can't get out there we can't have people showing up the most interesting crew that showed up was a uh was a sizable group of um uh french canadian uh motorcyclists who showed up looking for the nano brewery <laughs> Where's the Neno Brewery? <laughs> we're like, well, it's here, but we're not open to the public. So um, we sent them down to the Warren store where they could get some bottles. And uh, yeah, so this location we started planning uh, back in 2016. Uh, we had had a couple years of success with Sip of Sunshine coming out of Two Roads. And our sales grew tremendously during those couple of years after we started at Two Roads Brewing in 2014, so that was our eighth year in business, and started expanding distribution across New England. So first it was just Vermont, then we added Connecticut, and then New York City and Southern Maine and Massachusetts, and then Rhode Island, and expanded across New York, and then into the Philly area, which expanded out to most of PA, and then in 2019, New Jersey was the last state that we launched. Um, and that growth really put us in a position to consider doing... 
a destination facility like we have here in Waitsfield. Um, like I said a few minutes ago, we wanted to wel welcome folks in, have them under our own roof, uh, but also have a bigger brewery where we could focus on our limited release and specialty beers uh, and produce them here in Waitsfield. So uh, those were the two primary focuses, but we also wanted to um, put our values front and center with both building this place and being um, a growing company and starting to employ people. We just had a couple of people that worked for us before we opened up here. We had three employees in, in 2017. And then when we opened the new tap room and brewery here, we quickly went to 50 employees in one year. That was, uh, that was quite a year of growth. And with, with those values, we wanted to make sure we provided really a great place to work where we pay people generously and provide um, great benefits um, for both our, our part-time and our full-time full employees. Uh, so across the board, you know, medical, wellness benefit, dental, um, 401k, we do profit sharing for our employees and we have a number of other uh, smaller benefits. Of course, the liquids are a good, are a nice benefit too. Yeah. And, uh, and That's then often we, the only benefit. <laughs> yeah. And then we also, that. we also wanted to be, uh, kind of a leader in the business community. So we'd seen in a couple other places where we had visited, uh, a, what we called a no-tip model at the time. So a service establishment or a couple of breweries we visited, like Main, Main Beer uh, and uh, New Belgium, where at the tap room, the staff that are working there, instead of working for minimum wage and getting tips, they get paid more of the equivalent of a salary if they're there full-time, or at least the, the wages that would be considered a, a good living wage. And in lieu of tips, they would collect donations for... A good cause and uh, typically a nonprofit organization. So we focused in on healthy communities as our core focus for giving and we decided to adopt that model uh, and we call it our sunshine fund where in lieu of tips our, our staff don't accept tips they all get paid a, a pretty generous wage working in the tap room and the support staff in the kitchen and the, the floaters and the hosts uh, and uh, we encourage folks to make a donation in lieu of a tip, and that rotates around to different nonprofit organizations, one about every 15 days, um, two a month, 24 for the year. And it's just been incredible how much people have given to that program. We've been, we've been blown away. People have, uh, have been donating um, as if they're leaving a tip and even more generously sometimes. And so in, in, the, in the four years since we have founded that program, it's generated uh, over a million dollars in just four years for uh, dozens of nonprofit organizations focused on healthy communities and uh, food and economic security and then uh, protecting the natural environment as well uh, here in Vermont. Yeah, I think that, you know, I've seen a few places that do that, the, the donations instead of tips and I, f I feel like that kind of attitude is kind of contagious mm -hmm. and it's like, well, you know, that, I mean, that's showing that the people that work here, uh, you know, are, are taken care of. And mm -hmm. then do they vote on the taproom employees? Do they vote on where to go for the next donation? 
Yeah, we've done that in the past. And now, uh, after the first year, we developed an application process. So you uh, probably have a lot give, of people yeah. asking. Yeah, so we, we gave it a, a little bit more structure. Um, and so people, uh, the organizations that get considered for that have to apply. And so if a, if a taproom uh, staff member or anyone really on our team wants to suggest someone, um, what they can, what we'll, we'll talk with them and encourage them to reach out to that organization to let them know when to apply and how to apply for the Sunshine Fund. And we do a, a once a year over the summer months is when we take applications for a few months. And then we have a team of staff that participates in reviewing and scoring all of those applications for, you know, sort of how well that align they are with the, with our core focus of giving area to make sure they're a nonprofit organization, um, what the need is. And then through that process, um, the team of staff selects uh, who the next year's Sunshine Fund recipients will be. Okay. Yeah. So you've, uh, well, actually, before before I go to the environmental science. Sure. Uh, just walking over here, uh, walking through the brewery first. Yeah. Uh, there's There's a lot going on. Yes, yeah. there's a lot of beer, a lot of cans. Um, you even have the the robot with the the I don't know if that's the putting on the pallet. Or yeah, it's a palletizer. Yeah, loading up the full cases onto a pallet to save our employees' backs. Yeah, yep. I'd say a little easier than probably your initial uh, hand bottling. Yeah, uh, and a long ways from where you said you were starting for sure at Breckenridge doing the uh, hand capping. Uh, what is, uh, how do you apply the, the automation and things like that to, mm-hmm. like you said, saving mm-hmm. your employees backs from, yeah. you know, the cases and mm-hmm. pallets and everything. Uh, how do you apply that to, towards the environmental side of things where you can, you know, there are things that mm-hmm. you can't replace the human touch. Like I don't sure. want the robot pouring my beer. I want to talk to a person. I don't want to, uh, you know, there, I I feel like there's that side of it where Mm -hmm. the human touch shouldn't be automated. Yeah. But then you have things like that, that can make, Mm -hmm. you know, your economy of scale, your efficiency. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, make great beer and do things better overall. Mm -hmm. Uh, like where does that apply towards the, I guess the environmental, side to start taking it to that point? Um, that's a great question. It, it really comes down to our core values. And from the beginning, values have been central to to the business. So even when, even when it was a one-barrel brewery, uh, my wife Karen and I, who's, who's my business partner, and she heads up the social impact program here at Lawson's Finest now, it was really important that we give back to the community so in the beginning, it was in really small ways, but we supported uh, as many nonprofits as came to us that asked for donations of, of like gift cards or, or beer or t-shirts that they could or, or glassware that they could, uh, you know, use in a silent auction or a raffle, and uh, and then where it really starts is with. Um, the beer and the product. And so our first core value is be the finest. And, 
and being the finest is making the best beer possible, being really passionate and dedicated to the quality side of the product and then investing in state-of-the-art equipment is key so we could brew with passion and precision. And so seeing the, you know, the robot in there, the palletizer, um, again, it, it improves the quality of life for, for our employees. And when we built out this uh, facility, part of being the finest was ensuring that we built the most energy efficiency into the plant as we could, um, you know, getting, getting the very best of, of the equipment. And then the other core values um, that are really central to the, and lead and drive our business forward are keeping it authentic. So we've always tried to stay true to brand as we've grown and changed over the years. So staying true to those core values, part of which is being, being humble, recognizing the roots of where I came from, where we came from as a, as a company, as a brewery, and sticking to uh, sort of the core uh, brands and styles that people know and love that really lead the way for our brewery. It's not that we don't innovate. We're always innovating with new styles and uh, new techniques, uh, but making sure we don't stray from the core of what we do really well and some of the things that we do exceptionally well, like keeping the beer cold all the time and fresh. That was key from the beginning to try to get the beer to customers as quickly as possible from packaging and uh, requiring a cold supply chain the whole way through and ensuring that, that, that uh, keeping the beer cold keeps it brewery fresh uh, to the best extent possible within you know a shorter time frame window uh, as soon as it gets warm it starts to stale more quickly and then focus on community is our third core value and that really speaks to the connections to both um, giving back through our social impact program but really the community of people that work here so creating a culture that people can thrive in um, in our public space creating a tap room where everyone is welcome so that people feel safe and welcome there um, and then supporting our communities where we do business. Um, have fun is the fourth of our core values. Ben and Jerry got it right when they said, um, you know, if it's not fun, why do it? So that's been an approach from the beginning and uh, is reflected in the whimsical sort of names and the artwork and the playfulness to our beer names and, and the labels that we create. Um, and we really try to make sure that the culture here at our company is uh, includes having fun. We all work hard, but at the end of the day, and even throughout the day, we want to have fun while we're doing it because it really makes it uh, it makes it much more enjoyable to come to work every day um, if the people that you're connecting with are enjoying what they do and they're having fun while they do it. And then finally, um, take good care is the fifth of our sort of brand pillars or core values and taking good care is taking good care of our people, taking good care of the environment, um, and doing what we can through corporate, social, um, and environmental sustainability, uh, corporate and social responsibility and environmental sustainability to reduce our impact on the world and also to amplify our positive impact on in the world um, by being a business that leads with those values. And, and we try to be, we aspire to be a, a, a force for good in the world. And so along those lines, we're in the process of being uh, accredited as a B Corp. Um, we're we're, we're almost we're there. there. Yeah, yeah. We're I'm, in practice, we already are a B Corp, and then some. Um, but we're working through the official accreditation process, so we have that 
uh, both that seal of approval and that we can show and demonstrate to the rest of the world that it's validated, um, that we walk the walk and we talk the talk. Yeah. Yeah. I remember asking Robert Allagash about that and he was describing the process and saying, uh, you know, I thought, you know, we, we do everything the best we can to these extents. And I thought we were going to breeze through the test and barely pass. So it was kind of a, even for as, as much as you do, there's, there's always some more that you can, you know, some next steps or, or the next level you can go to absolutely in those ways. Um, on the, the, the roots of your, you know, your degree in environmental mm-hmm. science and the focus you have on that, uh, it's not always, it's, it's definitely not the easiest way to go about it. I'm sure mm-hmm. you could be making this much <clears throat> beer and have a lot more money in your pocket or in the, in the business bank account by doing things, you know, cheaper mm-hmm. and not necessarily, uh, in a, in the, you know, taking care of the environment, having that as a focus, taking care mm-hmm. of your people. Um, it's not like the, the fastest way to profit for sure. a business, yeah. which we see in capitalism, but you can do a business. You can run a business and, and do good mm-hmm. as, as here, um, main beer, you know, a, a lot of places that are, that put that, as a priority. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> would you do it any other way? Not for us. It, it, it uh, if it, it both, it, it feels good and it's good for business too. And I think today more than ever, people vote their dollars with their values. And so, uh, through the pandemic was a great example of how we're, we're a brand that managed to do well, even as the business changed a lot and the channels of, for sales changed and the tap room here was closed for uh, a year and a half for inside service. And yet we still managed to grow through the pandemic and we find found that people would, but they bought even more of our beer at the stores because um, one, that was the only place to get it. But two, we like to think because it's reliable and consistent and they believe in the, the brand and um, you're right. It's not the, it's definitely not the way to maximize profit, but for Karen and I, it is the way to maximize how good we feel about the hard work that goes into the business. Um, and as you had said, you know, reflecting on, you know, my prior career and the connection um, to the planet, um, one of the things that we've done with our sustainability efforts that I'm really proud of is investing in solar power. So right across the street, you saw when you drove in a, a solar canopy, that, and that provides about 50% of the electricity that we use on an annual basis. We have another uh, set of panels on the roof of the brewery that generates about 10, the equivalent of about 10% of what we use in a year. And we kicked off a project uh, last month. Uh, in November uh, over at the warehouse buildings that we bought about a year ago that were where we had been renting space and then an opportunity came up to buy those buildings a little over a year ago and so we ended up buying those buildings and making some improvements for our 
uh, for our offices. We, we also run our distribution and all of our materials handling out of those two warehouses. And so I saw that as another great way to get us more quickly to our goal of being able to generate the equivalent of 100% or more of the power, the electricity that we use um, here at the entire campus. So not just the tap room and the brewery, but we have a wastewater, state-of-the-art wastewater treatment facility, all the lighting across the campus, and then also all the electricity that's used over the, at the two warehouses. And we have some pretty significant consumption over there because we've got uh, you know really big cold storage. We have several different walk-in coolers where we keep all of our beer cold, both for v- distribution here in Vermont and then going out of Vermont um, to the rest of New England and New York, New Jersey, PA. Um, so I'm really excited about that project that'll come online uh, in the spring and that'll provide, uh, that'll get us past 100% um, solar power and then it'll be you know really looking down the road to the future is considering well what are the ways that we could get closer um, to net zero for our carbon footprint and the impact that we have because as everybody knows brewing is a pretty energy intensive uh, business water intensive mm-hmm. electricity and fuel intensive and so uh, from the beginning uh, like I said earlier investing in state-of-the-art equipment meant that we could reduce that consumption and then putting in place um, the best practices uh, and really honing in on our SOPs. Uh, since we opened this facility, we've been able to make significant efficiency improvements in how much water we use per barrel, how much electricity we use per barrel, how much CO2 we use per barrel. Um, so we've gotten efficient and, and better at every step of the way over the past four years since we opened here in Waitsfield. Do you know where you are now on uh, water uh What's the ratio? Is it gallons per barrel? Yeah, it's a, it's about uh, it's about um, well, it's a three. It's about a three. It's a little bit over a three to one ratio. So it takes about three gallons of water uh, to make one gallon of beer. Okay, and uh, I think industry standard is over five or maybe six. Yeah, yeah. I think you're doing a decent job if you're in that mid. Uh, single digit range so industry yeah. average like around like you said around five um, wider like not as many best practices not uncommon to hit nine or ten um, gallons per gallon or a nine to ten ratio um, so we're really proud of the efficiencies that we've made um, here at the brewery and as I mentioned we are in a rural area so we had to build our own wastewater treatment plant for the brewery uh, I was gonna waste. ask if that was yeah. probably a requirement it was. There was no way we could do a production brewery here in Waitsfield without our own um, treatment facility because there is no municipal facility. Thankfully, Waitsfield put in a municipal water supply, and we are we are by far the largest user of the town water here. And what's great is uh, because we use um, quite a bit of water, a couple million gallons a year, um, it helped the entire system because the system was built for much bigger use. Uh, than the whole town uses currently with the hope that the town would continue to add users to the water system. So once the brewery came online, the town water commission was able to lower the rates for everyone um, a couple of times. So it's just by just because we have, yeah, just because of the efficiency of having a larger user on the system using gallons and paying in per gallon Mm -hmm. um, helped lower the rate for everybody else. So that doesn't hurt yeah. your your. That's a good. That's a good town. good part of uh, reputation <laughs> of using plenty of water. Yeah. 
So as much beer as you're making here, how much, you know, what's kind of your ratio here versus uh, two roads? Um, well, we're doing about uh, 12,000 barrels and we're hitting, we're about approaching our maximum here in Waitsfield. Uh, and then we don't uh, publish or disclose our total figures, but we're able to make more uh, down in, in Stratford, Vermont. And um, as I said, that's where we make Sip of Sunshine. That's our number one uh, flagship. So without that, we wouldn't have been able to grow uh, to the point of being able to distribute through nine states. We just wouldn't have the volume um, here in Waitsfield. Being in a rural location and, and having that limitation of uh, both both location, but also the infrastructure. So we would have needed to move up towards Burlington or another larger city that has has municipal uh, wastewater treatment in order to do a much larger facility. This this one, the scale of this feels right to us, and it was really important to us to be committed to the Mad River Valley because we're we're feeding the economy here, both with the jobs that we've created, um, giving back to the community, and then attracting. Um, uh, beer tip tourism to the valley just for, from folks that come to visit us from literally all over the world mostly all over the country but even all over the world yeah i know uh russian river does a like an economic impact report for mm -hmm. the Pliny the younger release because mm -hmm. it's you know hotels and other businesses and food mm -hmm. and everything else for uh two weeks i think yeah that period yep and uh it's amazing what, you know, what beer can do in that it regard. Is. It's a powerful motivator. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you're approaching max here. Yeah. What do you do when you hit that number? Um, we'll look at um, potentially um, doing more, um, brewing more volume down in, um, down in Stratford, Connecticut, and then also looking at what are the other opportunities to, to brew, you know, to brew elsewhere. There are other, you know, we've been looking around to see if there are other places um you know closer to home where we can produce some volume here in vermont yeah so. i know some of that happens for breweries in uh, like at zero gravity or mm -hmm. but that's a little closer to home than yeah than almost new york city yeah they've made but. quite a quite an expansion one of the advantages of um, stratford connecticut is it's really central to our distribution footprint mm, yeah. so in that way um, if we tried to produce all of our beer in Vermont, there'd be a significantly greater um, cost for f all the for the freight coming out of Vermont, and the carbon footprint would be bigger too. Because the beer that goes from Stratford to to Boston to New York City to Jersey and Philly, it's a much shorter um, drive from there than it would be from here in Central Vermont. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had one point and I just totally lost it, uh, no but I heard uh, that in a in a previous interview you did a few years ago uh, that you still did uh, snowshoe tours. Yeah, yeah, Is I that still, still do. A thing? Yeah, I still do. I still work still up at Mad River Glen. Yeah, at the ski area <laughs> on the weekends in the winter. Yeah, so it's a pretty limited amount of time, and um, I hire staff to help with that. But I still lead tours during the winter up at Mad River Glen and. Um, the fun part of that story is that uh, we also do a full moon snowshoe, and that's where my wife Karen and I originally met. Was on a on a full moon snowshoe tour, pretty romantic okay. <laughs> way to meet. And I was leading the tour, and this was back in like 1999. 
and then she came back the next year and did another tour and that's when we really hit it off and and started dating and got married a year later and as they say the rest is history now we have two kids that are 17 gonna be off to college next year and and uh, 13 uh, eighth grade so two girls and um, it's been a great journey I like consider myself blessed I'm so fortunate uh, that our business has been successful and that it gives us a vehicle to make an impact in the world and also to give back to the local communities here in Vermont. Yeah, well, that's a, I'm sure the Snowshoe Tours have some pretty happy nostalgia aspect to it. Definitely, and now it's kind of funny because some people come for the Snowshoe Tour so that they can meet me, uh, the brewer, and hang out for a couple of hours on a snowshoe tour. Some people want to talk more beer than nature. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that part of it's kind of funny. And we do have a couple of beer-themed uh, events uh, during the winter up at Mad River Glen um, that intersect with the Naturalist program. Like one of the full moon snowshoes will do a beer dinner that goes along with the full moon snowshoes. So that's been a fun way to integrate the two, um, the two different ventures. And yeah, it's been, I was just thinking about it. It's kind of crazy because I started the program back in, uh, in 1996. So, you know, it's been like 27 years since, since I started up the naturalist program doing those snowshoe tours up at Mad River. Yeah. Uh, That's also, uh, you know, keeping you tied to where it all kind of started, but even, I guess, kind of at the same time as the beer, mm -hmm. maybe with the home brewing and the the uh, degree at, at Burlington. Yeah. So tying it all together and still going. Staying true to brand. Yeah. Yep. And even my own personal brand. Yeah. And so it's good because I, I, I love being outside. I love skiing. Uh, but even just being out in nature and out in the woods and just being in the natural environment is a, it's an important part of my everyday life. Like that's what I get up. That's my exercise. I get up every day and, and go, go for a hike, get out in the woods, um, take the dog. And, uh, part of what keeps me sane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta have the, the outlet when you've got as much going on as this. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, uh, how do you, I guess, theorize new beers or new ideas how do you mm-hmm. work on that mm-hmm. is that like a does the does the nature thing help you escape from the beer for an hour or two or whatever and so that or does it kind of like give you the time to think about the business in a different way or does it tie together in any way it's a little both but i'd say primarily uh, being out in nature is for me almost a form of meditation when I'm out there by myself and I'm, I'm moving through the woods or climbing up a mountain. Um, and it gives me the opportunity to just sort of clear out the, the clutter of thoughts and, um, and kind of just focus on being present. And then the beer ideas tend to come sitting around drinking a beer or um, talking with people connecting over a beer and of course now um, the team comes up with some great beer ideas so a number of our newer beers have come from come from the team themselves like our um, this beer that we're that we're tasting right now the Scrag Mountain Pilsner we also do a 
a version with lime and, and salt, and we call it our, we're going to rebrand it this year because we call it Scrag Mountain Pills with, with lime and salt. But we're going to, uh, we informally have been calling it Scragarita. Um, so we're going to rebrand that beer this year. And that's a beer one of our brewers came up with in a cask originally, and it was so okay. popular that night we tapped the first cask. We did it again, and then we brewed a test batch uh, at the full size, and people really loved it. And we've been doing that as a, a summer release the last two years, and and it's on the calendar again for next year. Yeah. So. Yeah, I can see that going well, and the weather warms up a little. Yeah, and then some of them um, are ideas that I come up with, but it's great that uh, there's it, there's some groupthink and a team involved in the in the process now. Yeah. You have your checks and balances, and yeah, exactly. Well, new beers that get to production scale, they go through so many more uh, iterations and trials and pilot batches than it used to be. Some with the seven barrel system, some days I just walk into the brewery and make something new just for the fun of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm pretty well out of questions. Great. Uh, thanks for the time. Yeah, doing absolutely. This and, uh, yeah, there's. There's worse places to be making beer. Yeah, definitely. A, we love it here. Yeah. Just just uh, getting here, it's like, this is a, like, no, there's a picture right there. There's a postcard right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, the, that's the, that's the upside and, and part of the downside is it's, we are kind of out of the way and it's, it's not easy to get people to come here. Like even just like up the road an hour, not even in uh, Stowe. Stowe's seem bigger destination, and so they get a lot more traffic that comes through town, which is a good thing for business, but maybe not as good for quality of life balancing out. Because when it gets really busy, the traffic is bad there. Um, but we're kind of the only thing that we're on the way to is Mad River Glen and Sugarbush ski areas. <laughs> yeah, yep, and a beautiful setting. So a lot of people come here for summer vacations to see the fall foliage to get married or hold a special event so uh, it's a good spot to be in the world yeah sean lawson the lawson of lawson's finest liquids along with his wife karen i appreciate the time and hospitality so thank you to sean and his team at lawson's uh also the pickled veggies and charcuterie plate were pretty damn good want to give those a shout out Definitely could have spent a few more days hanging out there, eating and drinking beer. I'll post some pictures on the old social media, uh, but the pictures don't really do justice to the area. Scenery's pretty beautiful. Tap room looks like a cabin in the best kind of way, like a really nice cabin. Not like the one that you think you're going to get attacked by a bear. But uh, yeah, there's a river right outside. It's a pretty great place to drink beer. So this one is going to wrap up this little mini-series of Vermont episodes, but who knows, maybe there'll be another little set at some point. I wouldn't mind uh, doing my research. But until then, you have to keep listening to find out, I guess. Uh, Follow the show on Instagram, maybe subscribe, maybe give the show a five-star rating. Uh, Actually, you should definitely do all of those things. Uh, But that's it. That's all I demand of you. I mean, ask politely with a smile and a thank you yeah thanks for listening to this episode thanks to sean lawson for being a great host and for sharing his story 
Thanks to the Hopped Up Network for promoting little shows like this for free. That's much appreciated. And uh, next episode is in the works. Production team is uh, toiling away. And by that, I mean I'm working on it. I am the production team. Just trying to sound fancy. Uh, Anyway, next episode is a little further south from Lawson's, but not much. Uh, It's a brewery you probably haven't heard of yet because they're pretty new. Uh, When I did the interview, it was before they had opened. They are now open. So, yeah. But for the name, Big Reveal is going to have to wait. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, see you in the next round.